You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Hello, everyone. We are continuing together in our journey towards a Christian understanding of God in which grace is the way by which God ultimately secures the salvation of us all, either in this lifetime or in the ages to come. In this episode, we take a look at the book of Revelation because it is often seen as a place which teaches a hell of no return in the form of a lake of fire. The book of Revelation is a complex and highly symbolic book, and this opens it to a wide variety of interpretations. One of the things that's really helped me to understand the book of Revelation was learning that this last book of the New Testament is an example of a form of writing in the ancient world called apocalyptic literature. Our modern sensibilities are not familiar with the high symbolism of apocalyptic literature. However, in the ancient world of Judaism and early Christianity, there were a number of important apocalyptic writings. In the Old Testament, the best example of apocalyptic is the book of Daniel, written about 150 years before the time of Christ. In the period between the Old and New Testaments, there were other apocalyptic writings, one of the most important of them being the book of Enoch, written about a hundred years before the time of Christ. The significance of the book of Enoch is attested to in the fact that the book of Enoch is actually quoted in the New Testament in the letter of Jude. Without going into too much detail here, which would be very easy to do, let me just say for right now that there was a whole world of apocalyptic literature in the time period surrounding the New Testament and the highly figurative and symbolic language of the book of Revelation and of other apocalyptic writings served an important purpose for oppressed people. For both Jewish people and for early Christians, apocalyptic literature provided a kind of code that they could use to talk about their oppressors without their oppressors being able to understand what their coded apocalyptic language meant. And the book of Revelation fits well within the worldview of oppressed people and within the structure of apocalyptic writing of that general time period. Dr. Eugene Boring, in his excellent commentary on the book of Revelation, summarizes the function of apocalyptic thought this way, writing, Apocalyptic thought, as represented in the book of Revelation, affirms that God is guiding history to a final goal, which God himself will bring about in the near future in a particular way that is already revealed. Notice how Dr. Boring characterizes the book of Revelation as an apocalyptic writing which describes events which will occur in the near future of the readers. And the book of Revelation does this. It paints a picture of a soon-arriving victory of God which was to take place in the near future relative to the time of its writing which was towards the end of the first century. In a way, the book of Revelation is like the sound of a bugle signaling a besieged group of people that the cavalry is on its way and that their rescue and victory is close at hand. The message of rescue and victory would have been an important source of encouragement for early Christians who were being persecuted for their faith and who may have been tempted to simply give up on their faith in the midst of this persecution. 
The nearness of their expected rescue can be seen in the very first sentence of the book of Revelation, which reads, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Revelation 1, 1. And once we start to look for evidence that the book of Revelation is describing events taking place in the near future, we can see more evidence of this in other places in the book of Revelation. Scattered throughout the book of Revelation, the reader is told that the time is near, Revelation 1-3, that believers should hold fast until he comes, Revelation 2-25 and Revelation 3-11, that it will only be a little longer, Revelation 6-11, that all must soon take place, Revelation 22-6, that the Lord is coming soon, Revelation 22-7 and that they are not to seal up the words of this book because the time is near, Revelation 22.10, that Jesus is coming soon, Revelation 22.12. And then finally, at the very end of Revelation, credited to Jesus is the promise, surely I am coming soon, Revelation 22.20. So when I am trying to understand the book of Revelation, one of the things I take into account is that its immediate purpose was to be an inspiration to Christians undergoing persecution by the Roman Empire. Understanding the book of Revelation as a source of hope for persecuted Christians towards the latter part of the first century of Christianity has helped me to keep the book of Revelation connected to its original historical context. Keeping the book of Revelation connected to its historical context keeps me from trying to make it be a book which was predicting future events which would not occur for thousands of years. So, the book of Revelation is most likely an example of Christian apocalyptic literature which anticipated an imminent rescue which was soon at hand. Keeping all of this in mind, we can now turn to the unique way in which the book of Revelation plays into the discussion about eternal destinies. There's a very significant passage towards the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 20, verse 15, which reads, Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The dramatic impact of this verse is further intensified in that the unrighteous are not just consigned to the lake of fire, they are seemingly launched into it since the guilty are said to be thrown into the lake of fire. In this passage, God literally seems to throw them away. And so it is not surprising that this verse alone is sufficient grounds for some to envision the ultimate separation of the damned. For instance, Franklin Graham had Revelation 20.15 in mind in an interview he gave in 2012 with Bill O'Reilly, in which Graham said to O'Reilly, The Bible is very clear, there is a hell. And if you look at Revelation chapter 20, not only is a person condemned to hell, they are thrown into hell. That's how serious it is. Notice that Graham said that when a person is condemned, according to Revelation chapter 20, that they are thrown into hell, not just into the lake of fire. So, as is the case for many evangelicals, when Franklin Graham reads Revelation 20:15, he doesn't just see that anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. He sees that anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into hell itself. And so Franklin Graham is an example of those who see the lake of fire in the book of Revelation as hell. And once the lake of fire is equated with hell, it certainly seems that the fate of the guilty is some form of eternal separation from God. So given all of this, how might we see more hopeful possibilities for those cast into the lake of fire? 
Let's start by taking some time to work our way through the last chapters of the book of Revelation, starting with chapter 20. Chapter 20 in the book of Revelation covers lots of ground. Satan is in prison for a thousand years. The Christian martyrs who lost their lives for their faith are raised from the dead to reign with Christ for that thousand-year period. Then, after the thousand years has passed, Satan is released from prison and he goes about deceiving all the nations. A great army follows Satan in a war against God's people. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the enemy. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet who had led the rebellion against God. Then the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are tormented in the lake of fire forever and ever, literally to the ages of the ages. Then there's a great white throne and all of the dead are standing before it. Everybody is there. The sea gives up her dead, death and Hades give up their dead, and then all are judged. And then death and Hades themselves are thrown into the lake of fire. And then we get to that verse we've been looking at, Revelation 20:15, where there is a judgment scene with a great white throne and a person seated on it. And all the dead appear before the throne, and anyone whose name was not found written into the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, which is understood to be the second death. By the end of the 20th chapter of Revelation, it seems as if everyone whose names were not written in the book of life are now all in the second death in the lake of fire. Then we get to chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. Here we find out that after all of this has taken place, there is a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and earth have passed away, and along with it the sea, for the sea is no more. That's in Revelation 21.1, that the sea is no more. And the absence of the sea is probably because in the ancient world, the sea represented chaos and unpredictability and threat. So we have seen a new heaven and a new earth with nothing to threaten it, not even a sea. Everyone whose names weren't in the book of life are in the lake of fire. And then the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, descends from the new heaven to the new earth in the form of a supermassive cube over a thousand miles long, wide, and high. This vision of the new Jerusalem descending occurs in Revelation 21.16, where we read, The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. And then he, referring to an angel, measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. Now, 12,000 stadia is about 1,400 miles. So we're looking at a city 1,400 miles wide and long and high. And surrounding the city is a wall 200 feet thick with 12 gates built into the wall. And there's something very important about the 12 gates in the city wall. The 12 gates in the city wall were never to be shut. In the ancient world, having walled cities with shut gates was a form of security. You could shut the gates to protect your city from enemies. But the gates of this city never needed to be shut because nothing impure could ever come through those gates. And then we come to Revelation chapter 22, where we find a curiously hopeful scene. In Revelation 22:14 through 17, we read about an invitation given from the Spirit and the Bride. The invitation reads, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. The new Jerusalem has come down from heaven. We are told, however, that there are people outside the gates. They are a mighty sorry lot. The spirit and the bride, and the bride is another way of referring to the gathered members of the church, issue an invitation to come in and drink the free gift of the water of life. To whom is this invitation given? Is it possible that this invitation is being given to all of the unworthy people outside the gates? Robin Perry, in his book, The Evangelical Universalist, argues that it is. Perry writes, In John's visionary geography, there are only two places one can be located, within the city enclosed in its walls of salvation, Isaiah 60:18), or outside the city in the lake of fire. The gates of the New Jerusalem are never closed. Given that those in the city would have no reason to leave it to enter the lake of fire, why are the doors always open? In the oracle of Isaiah 60, on which this vision is based, we read that the gates were left open for the purpose of allowing the nations to enter. See Isaiah 60:11, And that is the case here, too. The open doors are not just a symbol of security, but primarily a symbol of the God who excludes no one from His presence forever. Not only did the gates offer the opportunity for the lost to enter salvation from the lake of fire, but in John's vision, the lost actually avail themselves of this opportunity. So, when we're interpreting the book of Revelation, a legitimate question arises about the ending of the book. Is there hope even for those who go into the lake of fire? Because although the unrighteous are thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 20.15, they curiously reappear outside the gates of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22.15. Could it be that the lake of fire is the lake of God's purifying presence, the place where all illusions, lies, falsehoods, and rationalizations are finally destroyed? Charles Pridgen, president and founder of the Pittsburgh Bible Institute, saw the purifying possibilities of the lake of fire this way. He wrote, The lake of fire and brimstone signifies a fire burning with brimstone. The word brimstone, or sulfur, defines the character of the fire. The word theion, translated brimstone, is exactly the same word theion, which means divine. Sulfur was sacred to the deity among the ancient Greeks and was used to fumigate, to purify, and to cleanse, and to consecrate to the deity. For this purpose, they burned it in their incense. In Homer's Iliad, chapter 16, verse 228, one is spoken of as purifying a goblet with fire and brimstone. The verb derived from theion is theiu, which means to hallow, to make divine, or to dedicate to a god. To any Greek or to any trained in the Greek language, a lake of fire and brimstone would mean a lake of divine purification. The idea of judgment need not be excluded. Divine purification and divine consecration are the plain meaning in the ancient Greek. In the ordinary explanation, this fundamental meaning of the word is entirely left out, and nothing but eternal torment is associated with it. As Charles Pridgen pointed out in his book, Is Hell Eternal or Will God's Plan Fail? Sometimes word meanings change from the ancient world to ours. We've been trained to associate brimstone with the fire of eternal torment. 
but in the ancient world, brimstone was associated with purification through fire for dedication to God. And so, as I have come to see it, the book of Revelation is a unique apocalyptic book which needs to be approached with great care. Yet even in the book of Revelation, it's possible to see a message of hope. The gates of the New Jerusalem are always open. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Whoever hears this invitation and is thirsty can come in and drink the free gift of the water of life. Perhaps the lake of fire is not the lake of God's absence, but the lake of God's purifying presence. And so, even in the face of the daunting image of the lake of fire, I can see hope in the gates of the New Jerusalem which are never shut, and in the invitation from the Spirit and the Bride to come and freely drink the water of life, which I see as another image of grace. And I also invite you to hear this invitation and to drink from these free waters and to receive this grace and to continue to join with me in believing in the grace that saves all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.